Um, how are you getting on in 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 lockdown? I'm I'm fine. Uh, lo- lockdown is very much like uh, everyday life for me. <laughs> like we're allowed to, <laughs> we're allowed to leave and go to the shops, and we're allowed to leave and do a little bit of exercise, which is kind of the only reasons I leave my house, anyways. So I'm like perpetually on lockdown, anyways. Uh, so personally, it hasn't really affected me. It's been weird having the captain home and both of us working mm-hmm. in the same space all the time. Uh, that's been uh, that's been a bit of a change. But other than that, like it's it it it's fine. Um, it's bizarre seeing people. It's just bizarre not seeing heavy traffic and seeing people wearing masks and, yeah, everyone, and everyone looking at you as if you're a weapon. Do you know that <laughs> needs to be avoided? Uh, but mm. uh, but yeah, how about how about you? What do you what do you how what are your thoughts about uh, the um, uh, the pandemic? Uh, it's scary. Um... I'm not like emotionally anxious about it, but like, I've, just like when I think about it, it's very worrying. Mm-hmm. If you get me, mm-hmm. um, I'm not feeling scared, but I'm thinking and scared. Uh, so there's that. Um, the lockdown hasn't had a huge effect on me. Um, well, I mean, like it's it's disrupted me a lot, but I, I'm not I'm not feeling too bothered by it. If you understand, sure. Um, it's changed my works quite quite a bit. I've had to move uh, all of my work remote, and I you know I teach music, so that's been that's been interesting to try and all at once move a huge body of students all online. Um, now not all not all of my students have taken it have taken up lessons. Some just want to wait until it's all over and take up the lessons then. Um, but I'm I'm teaching some over Skype, teaching some via exchanging recordings and notes. Um, you know, it's like send a video or send a voice note on WhatsApp kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a little bit more successful than I would have expected. Oh, that's I'm, I'm good. Fairly pleased with the results. Yeah. Have you uh have you taken a, a pay cut in this? Like when your students decided not to do remote lessons, does that mean that affects you financially, or are you on steady pay? Uh, well, see, I'm, I'm kind of self-employed, so it's kind of, there's it, sort of a bit of an ambiguity about it, mm. but what I'm doing is I'm not charging for the students I'm not seeing, or I'm not, I'm not, not teaching, and I can, I can make up that time with them later or whatever. Okay, um, so, but for, for, for but, the time period, you've taken a bit of a hit on finances? Yeah. Oh, yeah, see, that's really rough. That's the thing that, uh, obviously, aside from people dying and things like that, but the, the hit people are taking financially is, um is 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 very worrying um there's lots of people who yeah. who would imagine c- can't cope i think I, i'm fortunate enough and i don't know about you but i imagine you're you're quite all right as well i think we're both quite fortunate enough that we can kind of uh weather this but for the people who can't it's just it must be it must be so bad it must be so bad yeah um, it is bad and it's really exposed a lot of the 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 gaps in how we've constructed our societies hasn't it like mm. that something like this which was always a possibility um was so ill prepared for um in some places and the whole the whole system has failed to cope with it and has has shown it 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 can't look after people when something like this happens mm-hmm. um for sure and i'm 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 pretty annoyed that we've had years and years of being told that everyone should have you know 3 months of income saved for emergencies and you know we have to be responsible with our money and then major employers 
weren't able to handle like two weeks of of not trading. Yeah. And that's affected people massively. And, you know, how come they, they're able to hoard all of the, the capital and resources and no one tells them that they should have three months of pay for people hoarded for an event like this? But do, you know, do you know what I learned yesterday, which drove me up the wall? Uh, is football, right? Uh, obviously, all football has been shut down, right? And that means people uh, can't get paid. There's this club called Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, they're a f- they're a pretty pretty well to do cl- a cr- a club. Um, yeah, they, they're in the Premier League, aren't they? They're in the Premier League. They were in the Champions League final two y- a year ago, two years ago. So they're like they're a continental yeah. quality club. Um, so anyway, they uh, I think it was two days ago or so, as of recording, uh, they announced that they were going to ask all non-player staff to take a pay cut. Um, mm-hmm. in order to like weather this storm, and it's the most like egregious thing ever because apparently this pay cut is going to amount to about five hundred thousand uh, sterling, so like half a million sterling, um, which amounts to about three weeks' wages for their top striker. So they've they've gone. We yeah. could we could cut the player salary a little bit. Or we can cut, like, the ground staff. And they were like, we'll cut the ground staff. And they're like, God damn it, lads. And, like, apparently their yeah. owner, it represents, uh, that that cut to the owner represents something like, I don't know, not percent of his net worth. And it's like, you take the pay cut, you, you just Like, it's so, it's so, so yeah. terrible. Like, the whole system is just, it's screwing people. Like, things go wrong and the little person gets screwed. And it's no good. No good. We need some of that. French spirit. French spirit? Madame oh. Guillotine. Oh, <laughs> I was like, is France coping with this quite well? But no, the guillotine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 French spirit, as in like, Hennessy cognac. <laughs> Wait, now I'm really confused. French spirit is Hennessy cognac. What are you talking about? I, I was, I was, I was proposing an alternative misinterpretation is all. Oh, okay. But you, you know Hennessy cognac. Uh, I do. I didn't realize. Oh wait, hang on. Hennessy is a cognac. Hennessy is is a brand. Well, I'm pretty sure it's a cognac. It's a brandy, anyway. Sure, sure. And it's yeah. French. It man, I thought it was Irish. It's French. Hennessy, well, Hennessy so is the, French. Yeah, Hennessy is is made in France. Yeah, the Hennessy clan that or the family or whatever that that made it or that make it um, were wild geese. So they were. Catholics that fled Ireland after the Nine Years' War, I think. Well, well, hang so on. that would have been in the... Hold on, hold on. Tudor or Elizabethan times. Hold on. So, wait, wild geese, are, that's the labour given to the people who fled in that time period? Um. Yeah, okay, and actually it goes over It goes over a long period, 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, yeah. Um, huh. Never heard that term. Yeah, before. so the, the wild geese w- were Irish um, Catholics and Jacobites and stuff that fled Ireland um, to the continent. Wow! So it is kind of Irish. Yeah, I mean it's it's got it's got an Irish root, but it's it's made in France, and I don't think they were, I don't think they were brandy makers before they were in France. <laughs> hmm. That's mad. Learn something new every day. Um, come here. There fi- we go. Final thing on, on the Corona thing. Um, do you recall mm-hmm. any of the other pandemics that uh, that we were hit with over the past uh, over our lifetime? Lifetime. And what are your feelings uh, as to regards the magnitude relative to what came before, like with the likes of swine flu uh, and bird flu and things like that? 
Um, I remember like swine flu and bird flu being people being kind of worried about them and them not amounting to much. Um, I remember Ebola being something that I mean is a horrific disease, but it was reasonably well managed. I think um, mm. uh, Zika similar. Um, the first one I really remember is SARS. So I would have been about thirteen or fourteen for the SARS epidemic. Let me check. When was that? Um, and that was that was quite scary. So 2002 to 2003. So what did you say? Yeah, I was 14. Um, and I, I remember being quite worried about that. I like I I I remember being at home, lying on the floor of the sitting room, and it being on Sky News. I was at home from from school for for whatever reason that day, watching Sky News as you do when you're 14. Um, uh, I don't know what, what I was what I was at at all. <laughs> um, uh, and that was like that was significantly less serious than this already is. Hmm. Yeah. See, my recollection is somewhat different. Um. Again, it's probably flawed because I was I'm younger than you. Um, so I was very young when these pandemics hit or these epidemics hit. Um, my recollection of swine flu is one of, uh, like real fear in that it was the idea that like you, you weren't likely to get the thing, but if you got the thing, it was real bad news. And I remember there was Mm. one or two people in town who, who got it, who got really like severely ill. I think one person even died of it. And there was like, like there was, there was amongst the small community there's like a, a real fear that like this could this could spread and like really hurt this community um whereas with this one i get the sense that everyone kind of thinks like i'm sure everyone's going to get it but the vast majority of the time you're going to be fine so there's like a, it's a different um a different level of fear it's a different it was a very different sort of thing um a different shape of the response, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this Certainly this one seems to be the one that is uh, more likely to get out of control. As in, you know, like everyone yeah. says that everyone's going to like, was it 40, between 40 and 70% of people are going to get this thing? Um, like that's, mm. that's just, just, just numbers wise, that's huge. Like that's, that's really terrifying. Um, I'm more worried about that than like getting it for myself and, and me being sick because I'll probably be fine. I mean, it, it's it is very swingy. Like, like you you get people that are in the higher risk category having mild cases or having good recoveries, and people in low risks like having severe illness and death. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, I'm I'm not feeling that worried about getting it myself. I'm just I, I'm worried about being a vector. Sure. Yeah. And like, I, I'm assuming most of us have parents, and if most of us are in our thirties as as we are. Uh, our parents tend to be older, so the idea that we become mm-hmm. vectors to infect them um, is 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 terrifying, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, you're dead right. Like I don't, I'm not really personally concerned. Uh, if I get it, I'm sure I'll just be horrifically ill for a week or two, and then everything's gravy. Uh, personally, but yeah, mm-hmm. being the vector is 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 the worrying thing. What What have you been? So you're saying your your routine hasn't changed that much from from being under lockdown? No. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Are you so you're not like finding yourself needing to do anything in particular for entertainment or? No, not really. It's the same old, same old, really. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I just. 
the the only way it's really affected is like in terms of my exercise, uh, in terms of how far I can go, um, how mm-hmm. long I can go, things like that. But entertainment wise, man, it's just it's the same. I'm watching Buffy. <laughs> it's keeping me going. Oh, really? <laughs> why Why do you ask? Are you have you been affected by entertainment? Um. Well, you see, I I. I'm not leaving the house. Like, I would leave the house four or five days a week. Like, I'd, I'd have to leave the house for work four or five days a week um, up until this. But now, I, I'm not leaving the house for work, so I'm just at home most of the time. Um, but I'm getting I'm getting more time with the dog, which is good. Um, and being able to take the dog on more walks, which which we both very much enjoy. Um, I've been I've been dressing very fancy. You've been dressing very fancy? What has this yeah. got to do with entertainment, man? Well, no, it's just like it is kind of an entertainment thing. Like it's you know it it it's, it's fun and it's it's it like you know makes me feel good. I have all these nice clothes that I never get to wear, and now I'm not going anywhere, so they're not going to like get torn or da- dirty or damaged or anything. So I'm just like wearing suits around the house, and it's great crack. Wow! Oh, I was I was envision- <laughs> envisaging you wearing a three piece suit, walking your dog down the street. That would have been a class sight. Um, oh well, yeah. I mean, like if I, 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 if if that's what I'm wearing when I take the dog for a walk, then yeah. What do you think people look at you a bit funny, Bill, when you do that? Um, it's not unlikely that they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. That is brilliant. Uh, I mean, whatever, whatever it takes to get you through today, man. <laughs> no, it's not required. It's just, it's you know, it's a little bit, a little bit of fun. Um, so today I'm actually, I'm not wearing a suit today, but I am wearing a, a sort of a crushed velvet smoking jacket. Oh Jesus, there's so many words in that that I don't understand in that combination. Crushed velvet. What is crushed velvet? Oh, ooh, really? You're wearing that? Sorry, yeah, it's it's not crushed velvet. It's just, sorry, it's just regular velvet, but it's red, kind of a dark red velvet. And it's got a shawl lapel uh, faced with black satin. <laughs> it's... So a regular velvet smoking jacket. Oh man, man, are you wearing like a Playboy top? It's not like a dressing gown kind of smoking jacket. It's it's more like like a like a, a suit jacket kind of thing. Oh, wow, that's 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 insane. Yeah. What sort of pants are you wearing with the smoking jacket? Please say it's something like Fat Man pants. That'd be great. <laughs> no, it's just it's just black chinos. Um, but uh, I'm wearing I'm wearing a sort of a a, a white a, a sort of a kind of kind of baggy white shirt with a mandarin collar. So I'm feeling kind of quite um, like a like a Victorian layabout, like a Victorian sort of wealthy libertine layabout. Oh God, I need more definitions. What's a mandarin collar? Um, like it doesn't turn down. It's just like a round collar. Turn it's down just, for it what? Like goes up to the neck and then stops. Uh, it doesn't. Do- oh. Nothing. It can't. It literally can't. Oh, okay, okay. So this is okay. This is what I think of as being like the the Chinese formal wear collar. Yeah, that's uh, that's intriguing. I must talk to you at some stage more about fashion because you're very you're very interesting to talk about fashion. I don't know if here's the correct place because we should ostensibly do some world building and conlang related stuff. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just love your your tips and tricks for men's fashion with regards to suits uh, and like <laughs> things like color combinations and what suits go with what purpose, uh, what for what occasions. Remember the day we went we went shopping. 
We, and this is why I bring this up, because I now have that suit. And as I progress, I'm kind of like, I wonder, should I pick up another suit? Uh, one that is like an informal type suit. Um, so I have like a dedicated formal and informal type suit. And then I'm like, I think Bill mentioned that like browns are very informal and greys can be too. And then I'm like, well, what colours go with those browns and greys? And like do you, for formal, do you want a tie? Do you not? You know, all the sort of jazz that I, I've been meaning to talk to you about. But again, we shouldn't do it on the show because again, this is people People are already <laughs> like, let's move on. Come on. Like, world building, let's go. I, um, I, just, I just want to make it clear. I'm not an expert by any means. I have a sort of a passing interest in a bit of knowledge but i'm not well you know more than i do yeah like before i met you my my um modus operandi when it came to purchasing suits was going to uh pennies which is like our primark our primark yeah primark primark is in the uk yeah um go in there and then just pick whatever black suit they have that fit me that was my modus operandi and then wear whatever shoes i had regardless of whether or not those worked with the suit um so you've certainly upped <laughs> my game somewhat so uh in this in this community of two bill you are the <laughs> expert in the kingdom of the blind <laughs> <laughs> okay anything else to add on COVID 19 uh or uh and if not do you want to move into follow-up um Everyone out there, stay safe. Social, well, physically distance. Um, don't socially distance. Uh, keep in contact with people. Wash your damn hands. And, Twenty seconds. And look after yourselves. Sing a song. Sing a song to yourself. Twenty seconds, and you'll be fine. Um, I, I, I wonder about that though. I'm not sure how good people's actual like timekeeping is without an external reference. I think we should we should like get musicologists to. Like get Daniel Leverton or someone to look into this. Um, like, how will they like state the original tempo? Because I know, like, I'm I'm a professional musician, and if I like, if I'm listening to something and I go away, I will speed up like in my head, and I will end up ahead of the song if I go back into the room. Um, I think Bill, what's occurring here is that. Uh, th- they just want you to sing a thing so you'll wash your hands longer than you ordinarily would. I think they've accounted. I yeah. think singing a verse of happy birthday, regardless of how much tempo variation you naturally have, will necessarily bring you above the 20 second mark. I don't think anyone sings okay. happy birthday in less than 20 seconds. Um, <laughs> that seems quick to me. Crotchet equal to 300. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Uh, grindcore happy birthday this this is this is actually a slight world building related thing sorry carry on this is slightly world building related uh i remember listening to a podcast i can't remember which one but it was ages ago and it was talking about um ancient medicine um yeah and like in a non sort of pseudo uh, science or way in a sort of cultural study of like let's look at how people practice medicine what they wrote about it etc um and one thing that kept popping up is the idea of chanting and singing as mm-hmm. part of a, a cure for whatever the hell's going on and the modern mind looks at this and goes well that's a load of pseudoscientific nonsense uh that obviously has no effect on 
on the remedy. Uh, but the people studying these papers were like, well, actually, what they've done there is they've just built in a time component to the cure, much like yeah. this COVID-19 thing. You know, sing a song to ensure that you wash your hands for the correct amount of time. And every time I do this, I think back to like, I don't know, like someone in the 1600s, you know, formulating a cure for boils or whatever. And they have to sing some sea chanty uh in order to <laughs> make the thing work and it just that's that's a cool little thing that people could put into world building uh the notion of time being part of medicine and uh singing and things like that being part of cures and remedies and the like i think that's a fun little uh, bit of flavor yeah that's that's interesting like that the the thing you do isn't the main focus of of the the treatment but like the behaviors it causes or some, some kind of side effect kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's definitely very interesting. Um, and I think that that's really interesting from the point of view of like religion and stuff as well. It's that, you know, it's not necessarily that you will get some kind of literal thing from the prayer or from the ritual or from the, the, the service, the, the communal service, mm-hmm. but the fact of doing it is like a, it's good for mental health um, yeah. Yeah. or it, you know, it creates a sense of community, etc. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Um, yeah. So just a, a thing that people can play with. Um, now, come here. We're, we're, we're nearly half an hour in. Shall we do some follow up? Um, I just want to say one thing <laughs> regarding that, that thing about the ancient medicine. No, it's, 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 it's a natural, it's, it's naturally building on. Okay. Um, about that, 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 that medicine thing um and immediately what my mind went to was do you know the band Nile uh yes um so for any listeners who aren't familiar with them they're a death metal band an american death metal band um N I L E like the river uh because nearly all of their songs are based on ancient egypt and actually they take like they they take their lyrics from translations of ancient egyptian uh, texts um and it kind of builds into their whole aesthetic and stuff. And they're very, very cool. They're very, very cool if if you like death metal. Um, but they have a, an album, or they have a song from a, about 10 years ago called Hittite Dung Incantation, um, which is a translation of a, of a prayer kind of medicine thing. Because, you know, in, in that part of the world at the time, magic and medicine weren't separate concepts. Um and it's a it's about a, a spell to cast out demons from someone um and it involves like eating dog excrement and all this other stuff and the 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 song kind of describes how it's done hmm what what benefit yeah. would the dog excrement have though i mean it may have had none yeah but uh, as in but like what psychological benefit <laughs> in the same way that singing it, it may it may have had none like it may have oh. just been total quackery i don't know the i don't know the actual me- the the medical effectiveness of it but just you know when you're talking about like the ritual and and the practice of ancient magic uh, and a world building point of view um i think nile would be an interesting band for for a lot of world builders do you know what I've often taught i've often wondered i wonder what quackery looked like back in the days of quackery you know like, you're in the 1600s and all medicine is effectively bullshit. Uh, like, what does what what does quackery look like then? Like, what is crazy yeah. in, given that 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 culture, you know? Uh, that'd be fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, d- does the concept even exist? Like, do they have enough of a 
concept of uh, medical rigor for quackery to be a relevant concept. Oh, that's interesting. Everything is quackery. Therefore, nothing is quackery. <laughs> uh, anyhow, should we do some follow-up? Okay, follow-up. <laughs> First email here uh, I want to talk about is, it comes from Raider Ace, um, and the subject is Building Continents. Hey Artifexian, I'm building a steampunk magic world based uh, on very similar conditions that Earth is made of, except for one thing, volcanic activity is true to roof, helping create a gem which powers all the contraptions in this world. Um, this gem, this material is called uh, Mechanicum. Mechanium? Uh, the continent the story is based on is roughly the size of Europe, however it has seven large volcanoes, all roughly the size of Vesuvius, meanwhile others are quite smaller. There are around 600 active volcanoes around this continent. Uh, I would like to know how how much of an impact this would have on the local flora and fauna, not to mention the physical geography of the world. Um, so, on on hearing that, Bill, have you any thoughts? Um, 600 seems like a really big number, but I don't know much about volcanoes. Seven Vesuviuses seems pretty pretty manageable. Um. Yeah, six hundred is uh, is a gigantic number. I did a quick Google before the show. Uh, the Ring of Fire, in its entirety, has about four hundred and fifty volcanoes. Um, so right. we're looking at what is what is percentage point more? That is twenty percent more. Is it? No, it's fifty percent more. Yes, we're looking at fifty percent more volcanoes, uh, except not surrounding Pacific Ocean, surrounding Europe. Yeah, uh, which is that is a lot. <laughs> That is through the roof. That is definitely through the roof. That is tr- definitely um, through the roof. <laughs> um, so I looked at how much of an impact this would have on the local flora and fauna, not to mention the physical geography of the world. Um, I guess you'd look into, does it have any effect on um, what other materials can be uh, taken from the earth? Um, like, is there certain... I mean, I, I don't know about volcanology or geology, but is there any kind of um, correlation between the the composition of the of the land and prevalence of volcanoes? I expect I expect there wouldn't really be like it wouldn't mean that you couldn't get iron or tungsten or whatever. Um, but I suppose what kind of rocks would be available would be relevant. They would be um, there's three kinds of rocks. Which is the one that is post post volcanic igneous? Is it? I think so. Hold on. Junior cert geography coming back to me. Yes, igneous rock is that has has solidified from lava or magma. So there'd be a high prevalence of igneous rock basically everywhere. I, I would I would guess so. Yeah, I would guess so. Um. So what wh- what rocks are igneous? Let's find out. But even if there's even if there's a high proportion of igneous rocks, that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be uh, all the other materials that would be on a regular Earth, you know? Um, um, no, but I'd imagine there, there would probably be more of them. But then, I mean, yes. look into that and see if that's the case in, in the regions surrounding volcanoes. Maybe it's not. Um, I, I, that, that's interesting, though, but I wonder like, if, if, there's, if there's a high degree of igneous rocks. And let's say, for example, the rocks you use to build stuff are not igneous i don't know maybe you can confirm this in a second uh maybe uh they aren't as readily available then so the idea of constructing like houses and stuff is entirely different um you know yeah 
Um, I, I don't well, know I mean, what, like what at... rocks do we build houses of? What are the house rocks? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. Basalt. What ones look familiar here? Granite. Yeah, you can build with granite. Um, obsidian. Um, <laughs> obsidian house. That's... <laughs> the peasant's yeah, house. Yeah, I mean, that, would be, a, that would be a little bit extra. Uh, humus. Probably couldn't build with that. Um, no. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't make that much of a difference. I don't know. Hmm. Um, so anyway, that w- would be my first thought. Um, igneous rocks would be would be prevalent. Um, as regards the local flora and fauna, uh, I mean, if it's if it's that prevalent all over the world, they'd probably have some kind of means of dealing with um, artificial winters. Yeah, I was about to say the pollution is going to be a bit of an issue. Yeah. But then, but then again, like then again, these the, all these volcanoes do they have to be constantly firing though? Like you can have a high degree, like a high amount of volcanoes, but a lot of them are dormant or semi-dormant. Um, well, but the, the the email specifically specified active. Oh, volca- active yeah, vol- vol- uh, volcanic activity. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, my thoughts on the the flora and fauna thing again, not a volcanologist or geologist or anything here, but just idle musings, is that, uh, yeah, you're, I think you're right about the pollution being an issue for uh, life. I think there, if, mm. if everything is constantly erupting all the time, there has to be some sort of issue with regards to how plants grow. Um, because, you know, yeah. they grow a bit and then they just get covered in lava. Um, so they have to have mm. some mechanism to deal with that, maybe extremely rapid growing cycles. Um, that I was about to say, yeah, yeah, perhaps that could be it. But also, I've, I, I think um, volcanic soil or land or whatever the hell is quite nutrient rich because it's like all the nutrients are mm. co- all the like um, elements are coming up from inside the earth. So it um, maybe that could be justification for this rapid uh, growth period of plants that you, you have extremely nutrient rich soils and you get this explosive plant growth. Um, yeah. Only to be quelled by oh, it's like the volcanoes could be a temper to that explosive pl- uh, plant growth. Like as in no, no volcanoes and the plants would just like take over. That's the natural check on them. Uh, that could be a thing. Um, same kind of deal with animals, but to a lesser extent because they can move. Obviously, I'd imagine stuff like migration could be an issue even because like if you're a bird mm-hmm. and crap, <laughs> and like you're wanting to fly home to your whatever, to the mountainside that you uh, uh, you were birthed on. That mountainside might look, enti- might look smell, uh, taste, all sort of things entirely differently once there's been a couple of eruptions. So maybe that'll screw with yeah. the inbuilt directionality or whatever of, of uh, migrating animals, I think. But that's based on nothing other than idle musings. So, um, yeah, no, no, no. Um, I'd be interested, like... If there's that much uh, volcanic activity, what kind of um, what kind of agriculture is possible, mm. and how would you have enough of an agrarian society to develop the technology to like exploit mining to the extent you'd need to, and to get mechanium, um, and develop steampunk style technology? Um, Do you think maybe they could like? Um, I, I guess it's very hard to make lava go where you want it to go because about to say like maybe they could like if you had a mountain oh that's right? so cool 
That's a, like lava aqueducts. That is that is such that is such a absolutely dope idea. Is this okay? Is that not like an obvious idea though? As in, because just let me. Let well, me, it didn't occur to me. But let me let me talk to it. So like, let's imagine we have a mountain, and you want to conduct agriculture around said mountain, but it's constantly uh, exploding and stuff. So surely you'd go to yourself. But is there any way we can control the explosion? Like just like when we fell trees, we can control where they fall. So then we end up to like we end up creating aqueducts and stuff to funnel the um, the lava and stuff from the explosion away from one side of the mountain, and you can conduct agriculture on the other side. Um, but then, then again, like I said, start moving lava about and controlling explosive effects is uh, very difficult. And I don't know how feasible that would be. I mean, like actual like big eruptions, like Mount Etna eruptions, yeah. But like, there's a lot of slower eruptions as well that are just kind of lava coming up. And you could, I'm sure that you could, in theory, build build channels and ditches over the course of a season um, mm. to divert it one way. Um, and that way you could you could set it up that it would burn one area and then that would leave rich soil there to plant in the next season. Oh, that's very interesting, Bill. I like that. Because uh, I was thinking about permanent, like, aqueducts to funnel away the lava, but I mm. like that temporary one. So you funnel to gain all the nutrients and then plant there and then uh, do the same thing on the other side. That's great. Very, very, very cool. Um, yeah, I like it. And then you can have like little obsidian farmhouses <laughs> and, little obsidian, <laughs> and little obsidian farmers with the little obsidian farm hoes. It'd be great. <laughs> but yeah, so that's all I can think of in terms of flora, fauna and physical geography. Um, yeah, I don't have, I don't have much. I think chaotic. Doubt. I think it'd be, it'd be chaotic um, rather yeah. than kind of as seasonal as we think of sure yeah i think but i think it could work i think this is a plausible ish scenario you know like it, it's it's a bit extra yeah. but like it's nothing it's not fantastical or anything um and they yeah, also i think, did it's, say I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a interesting possibilities sure uh, and they also did say that it's a steampunk magic setting so like you know um, if there's mm-hmm. magic involved, magic can solve an awful lot of problems of having 600 active volcanoes surrounding a continent the size of Europe, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah. uh, but it's a cool, it's a cool scenario. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks for writing in Raider Ace. So the next email, uh, we got comes from Xander of Cascadia, great username, uh, and they have a contribution for Shit Flag Corner. Uh, they are presenting the city of Bartlesville, Oklahoma flag. Now, I think okay. I have talked about this before, uh, maybe in my flag video, because this is the one of the canonical, like maybe say the top four terrible flags in the world. Um, so I, I might be repeating myself here, but just for the sake of anyone who, who might be new to, you know, critiquing terrible oh flag God. design, I felt like let's go over Jesus one of the classics. Uh, is that okay with you, Bill? Oh, oh, please. So have have you seen this flag before? Is this new to you? I'm not sure that I have. I couldn't I couldn't confidently say yes. Huh, okay, okay. Uh so this is this is a white flag. Oh my flag. god. Oh also, I believe I could be wrong on this, so correct me internet, but I think this flag has been replaced with a better flag. Um, there was a wave of uh, shit flag eradication that went on a couple of years ago. I think Bartlesville 
was one of those um, places to improve the flag, along with like Provo and, and things like that. Um, so this could be an old flag. I, I don't know. Uh, or IP in peace, it. Provo. Um, anyhow, so, but... Uh, as as this flag is depicted, oh, it's in the show notes for those who who uh, who can do visuals. Um, it's a white flag. Uh, bang in the center is the text. Always a good starting point. City of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. <laughs> um, the text itself it's quite a nice font. I like it. Quite modern. My issue with this is that they're they use there's too much variety here. They use a variety of font weights and sizes. And also uh, upper and lowercase. It's just, it's really silly. It's like city, city of is in one weight, capital C for city, right? So we're doing, okay, we're doing initial capitals of nouns. Great. But then we have Bartlesville in another weight, much bigger, and it's bold. But we don't capitalize Bartlesville. Bartlesville is lowercase, but we had uppercase for city. And then Oklahoma below it is in another weight, uh, all caps, and it's uh, the tracking of the characters is really wide. So it's like someone said, how can we make every line of text completely unrelated to the previous line of text and let's put that on our flag? It's so bad. And it's like subtly bad because... It's uh, it's a thing that unless you're like a typography nerd, you mightn't clock. But like I've been looking a lot in, into typography for the sake of this atlas mapping thing I'm doing at the moment. And this is just so, so terrible. So that's number one component. Uh, the second component is the lower third banner, which is a sort of radial gradient strip that goes from like bright brown to dark brown. Uh, not cleanly, but in in very uh, a very stepwise sort of function. Click on the link, and you'll see uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. And superimposed on this brown 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 why brown on this brown banner are a number of uh, symbols. Obviously, this is what the city of Bartlesfield is known for. On the on the very far left, we have like a Phantom of the Opera style mask type thing. Um, yeah, of of the pair of Greek masks for like tragedy and comedy, it's the comedy one. Bingo, bingo, and it's gold, and it's got a string hanging out of it that, that squiggles its way up to Bartlesville. Next to that, we have a mu- we have a treble clef, and we have two music notes, a quaver and a semi quaver. Um, so it looks like the comedy mask is is ejaculating the treble clef into uh, the spectrum of brownness there. Uh, then in the middle, we oh have, have some sort of dream catcher, some sort of Native American, some sort of Indian uh, thing there. I, I don't know what the, the correct terminology for this is. Um, after that, we have like um, s- like sports ball corner <laughs> where it's like all the different sports balls that obviously occur in, in uh, the city of Bartlesville. We have like a baseball, a football, a golf ball. Basketball. Oh, is it a golf ball? I think okay. I think I was it's a golf ball. What that one was. Um, and then an American football, and the baseball also has uh, go faster swoosh lines on it, uh, and it's <laughs> <laughs> and they're against a green background on top of the brown banner. Yeah, and I don't know what that green background, which is also for. has a gradient of its own, kind of in it. Yeah, and gradients again are another thing that you don't want in a flag, but they've just gone gradient tastic yeah. here. Um, I don't know what that green is. Maybe it's meant to resemble a pitch of some description. Um, but I don't. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. 
but it's like, what pitch is egg-shaped, you know? Um, are there any American sports where the pitch is egg-shaped? I don't, I don't think so. Australian rules. Australian rules, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Australian football. <laughs> uh, and then next to that, we have a, uh, like a radio tower, again, with like a metallic gradient. So this is the third gradient. Actually, if you count the comedy mass, this is the fourth gradient on this, uh, this this uh, flag, it's this uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a radio tower, and it looks like it's literally. I think it's an oil derrick. An oil derrick? Oh, do you think so? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so this this tower here, it has two lines, like something is spewing out of the top. I took that to be um, like um, sound waves, you know, like the radio show propagating out in space. But you could easily see that as being like uh, an oil type thing. That makes sense. Um, Either way, it's out of the top of this tower comes a uh, a line uh, that is like weirdly 3D and it must be a, a representation of the skyline of the city of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Um, and it, this, leads, this leads us all the way back to city of Bartlesville. That is the entirety of the flag. Now, but in a weird way, there is a kind of nice visual cyclical nature to this. Like you start with text then your eye is drawn down to the banner of brownness uh, up to the oil oil rig. What did you call it? Oil derrick. And up to the oil derrick and then around the skyline and back again. Like in an odd way, I think they've sort of haphazardly stumbled, stumbled on uh, a visually, a nice visual sort of layout. It's just they've, they've ruined it with stuff and gradients and, and text. And it's just... It's just awful. And like I said, it's in like the, maybe the top five worst flags of all time. It's it's infamous. Infamous in the community. Um, what do you think, Bill? Like they, they've got they've got certain elements of design are 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 done nicely here. Like they, they they've hit certain criteria for, for what we consider nice design culturally. Um but only certain ones. And they not necessarily the appropriate ones because it's more like a a corporate logo mm-hmm. than a flag, and even then it's been overloaded. Mm-hmm. Yup. Um. So as soon as soon as we started talking about this, I went on to the Vexillology subreddit, um, just so I could see had anyone uh put this flag into the flag wafer bot, and it is fantastic. Wait, what's the flag wafer bot? Any any image that you comment, any image that's posted to to the Vexillology Reddit, possibly it might work in other Reddits as well. Um, if you comment, um, I think it's like exclamation mark wave or something. Um, it'll come up um, with an animated image of that flag in the wind. Oh my God, Bill. That's Man, I'm amazed you didn't know this. That is absolutely glorious. Okay, hold on. Let me go to the subreddit here. Let me see this. And I, so it has been, it is part of this bot or whatever. I, I, I can see the flag of Battlesville, Oklahoma fluttering in the wind, correct? Yeah. Okay. okay. Can, every, and basically every post on Vexillology gets it. Oh, I think I have it. Oh, this, yeah, yeah, the flag waver. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> links okay so links in the show notes to this oh god it looks so bad when it's fluttering particularly when the flag bunches up it just looks like color vomit it's not good man <laughs> i 
and I this and the, this 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 um simulation really I think it really points out well why we don't want to use text because like half the time it's utterly unreadable because it's the wrong way around, um because yeah. flags are don't tend to usually be printed on both sides, um so like it only this flag kind of sort of only works in one orientation and that is like non-fluttering front on and in any other orientation this flag is just, it's a glorious train wreck links to the flag waiver in the uh, description thank you for pointing that out bill it's it, honestly it's it's one of the it's the best thing about the vexillology subreddit like it, everyone comments or someone comments on, on nearly every post and you get to see the that flag in the in in action in virtual action but in action nonetheless need to go into comments more i tend not to go into comments um yeah, so that that was Flag Corner. Uh, thank you for that, Xander of Cascadia, uh, bringing a classic uh, to to the Artifaxian podcast. Worth going over, even if uh, we've covered it in the past before. Um, shall we read it, Bill? Let's. So, uh, real quick, two real quick points here for me. Uh, Drozeng Keep via the Reddit uh, left a cool article entitled Five Languages That Could Change the Way You See the World." Despite the clickbaity title, title it's it's quite a fun little overview of some of uh you some of the unique features uh found in language. I'm gonna leave that in the show notes, and you should go mm-hmm. check it out. Um, it, it it's yeah, a, it's it's not a bad article. No, no. Um, the 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 headline is massively overstated. The the article is a little overstated. I think um, linguistic relativism isn't taken super seriously. By most linguists anymore. Yeah, sure. Um, but it's it's a good article. Sure, and it's, it's a fun thing for like thinking about languages. For sure, and uh, it should serve as a bit of a starting off point. So, as in, like, um, you can go through each of the five and just Google, then Google that language and read up about the grammar on that language. Um, it's a good starting mm-hmm. point. So, links in the show notes to that. The other thing on the Reddit comes from Google Pixelbyte. Um, it, this is to do with the politics discussion from the last show. Uh, before I specifically address uh, Google Pixelbyte here, um, just props to everyone in the Reddit. We talked about politics and there was no shouting. It was great. There was no... Uh, the, 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 the subreddit was super civil, an interesting back and forth about how uh, politics works and not in the sort of soap opera nonsense of like, oh, my team said this and your team said that in the sort of like mechanics of how... Governments organize themselves. It was really fun and uh, props to everyone. It was it was great. It was, it was just a breath of fresh air to have a politics discussion that wasn't mudslinging. Awesome. Um, anyhow, Google Pixelbyte brings up uh, an interesting thing. We, we were talking about the Irish government and how it works. Um, they were like, it's great. It's great and all that you guys use proportional voting to get a government to to uh, to vote in a government but after they're voted in you just abandon the notion of por- uh, proportionality and you just go straight to first past the post again and that's a bit um if we were to try and think about like how to craft the ideal government that's a bit weak because uh, proportionality is great you know and they mentioned the idea of wouldn't it be awesome if uh, a parliamentary type structure would use score voting particularly on things like budgets and stuff. So instead of going, here is proposed budget for 2020, yay or nay, everyone, and people have to yay or nay, um, you do things like, here are the different versions of the budget, rank 
the versions on a um, scale of one to, a zero to nine, for example, and then use that as a basis to gauge what is the most what is the most representative budget, for example, that this parliament wants. Um, I think that was a really neat idea uh, and a cool thing that people might want to employ in their settings. Um, mm. What are your What are your thoughts on that bill? I can't quite get my head around how it would work in action. Um, I'll need to think about it. Hmm. My concern with stuff like that is, um, historically, that can historically, I would be worried that it would it would um empower fringe parties. It would make more mainstream parties have to um make concessions towards fringe parties um in order to secure their 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 power um, and in, in order to secure their stability um and historically that has been very good for fascists um <laughs> which is uh, an ongoing act of concern in in the current world um no i i'm not, i'm not sure about this i need i need to think about it and, and see how that would work but i'd just be kind of like if you have a a sort of a a center right party for example um they may need to make certain concessions to uh, to to the further right to to keep that base allied to them um but if they are if they are able to just pass they if they have enough of a majority by themselves to pass their um pass their budgets or pass their legislation then that's less of a concern but if they have something like this, then it is more necessary for them to make concessions to fascism. I, I don't see it like that at all. Like, I, I see it as in, um, as in, like, imagine, let's imagine uh, a scenario where four budgets were put forward, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the left budget, the center budget, uh, the communist budget and the fascist budget, for example. Um, and everyone had to rank what they like about the budget uh, uh, rank um the budgets from zero to nine um th- there is no having to make concessions to fascists or whatever there because people people are just ranking what they prefer and if everyone prefers the fascist budget then unfortunately you have a fascist budget right but if uh but yeah but, but, but like in sorry go on no no go on go on go on but like in practice if the if the the center right want to make their thing more likely to pass, then they will be able to, oh, to they will be able to change their budget to make it more appealing to the fascist. I see. So they want to soak up some of those preferences from the fascists. So they'll be like, let's stick yeah. in a couple of things. I'll bring them over. I see. I see. Uh, could a question though? Uh, could that not be uh, something that occurs anyways in, in politics? Like, is that not kind of behind the scenes wheeling and dealing? Yeah. It would be, but I think this, and and I said that, and it does happen, mm. but I think this would enable it further, potentially. Oh, so it would, like, formalise it. It will give a formal mechanism for that, as opposed to behind the scenes. Um, I, 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 don't think, I don't think it would formalise it as such, but it would just be another avenue for it to happen on, and, uh, and it would kind of expedite it. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't read it like that at all. That's, that's very, very interesting. Um, I think it does have some utility, though, in the sense of like, particularly if you think on budgets, um, like if you're a politician and government pr- uh, proposes a budget and you absolutely love the budget, it's a great budget, except there's 
the government do you think the government's spending too much on military for example um and mm-hmm. you're say you're morally against that you have to kill the budget then you have to vote against it even though you agree with like 80 percent of it um so that's yeah. sort of first first past the post thing there kind of allows no nuance to occur so something like score voting um while whilst i take your point that it has that downside it does allow there to be a more nuanced um debate and a vote on on issues particularly budgets now obviously something like you know yay or nay uh say the deployment of aid to you know three million quid aid to a impoverished country that can be first past post because it's like it's a, it's a it's a straight yay or nay um but in more complex situations something more proportional i think would be a cool um solution potentially yeah yeah, yeah this, and this is just one kind of d- downside i see to it sure yeah um and no system's perfect as well like apart from prstv uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm so entrenched with my love of prstv uh anyway but so that's just <laughs> a cool thing that uh, came uh, via google pixelbyte um just and just again just to round off this this section of follow up um props to everyone it was it's it's really nice no one was was attacking anyone and it's just it's wonderful absolutely wonderful um i hope we can do it again sometime internet <laughs> i'm still in the midst of uh my mapping series so there's very little to talk about in terms of videos on my end so for the second podcast running it, this this writer's room is going to be all bill all the time 100 <laughs> percent bill uh what have you got for us this month bill we are back in ikern and uh back talking about the hoitan who i spoke about i think two episodes ago uh really quickly who are the hoitan again uh so the hoitan are uh uh, a nation to the east of the Abeski, the spires, like the Amir Sphere and all those places, the the aeronauts. Um and they they're the they're kind of seen as sort of primitive to, in a way by the Abeski. And they're very um the, one of the main things about them was that they they don't let outsiders into their their homes. They have camps and people people can go to their camps and, and meet them there, but their actual towns and villages are, are, are kept secret cool those guys um so yeah do, do you want to launch into it the hoi tan are surely the most perplexing people of ikern save perhaps the eccentric and elusive Binni. Though the Bini are so singular in their travels, and that it is almost unheard of to encounter them in groups. So let me say, the Hoitan are the most curious nation of all those the Abeski deal with. They are deeply welcoming and generous, within the province of their generosity, the borders of which are guarded by iron walls and which seldom expand for outsiders. Beyond this limit, they are as immovable and stoic as a mountain, more secretive than the night. Any friend or stranger may enter a Hoitan camp, but none have ever seen their towns. And an enemy will not see within their pickets, for once made, an enmity is held forever by the Hoitani, and they are as vicious and passionate in combat as any of the beasts of their wild land. For all this, they are curiously unmanly. 
Their men take a commendable pride in their appearance, according to their own fashions, but it is a communal pursuit. Where an officer or a societal man tends to his own clothes, the Hoitani are dressed and adorned among friends. On the eve of battle, or in the hours before a feast, the men gather in groups. One perhaps attends to his fellow's hair, combing and oiling it. One attends to the belts and jewellery. Another may lend his own tunics to a fellow who owns ones less fine. Welcomed outsiders are included also, and given lavish attention to ensure they appear the equal as any native Hoitani. Displays of great affection are commonplace. Coarse, wild men, accustomed to hunting ursalk or breaking limbs in skirmishes, when within camp, readily embrace one another. Caresses that will be exchanged only between deepest intimates among the Abeski are signs of simple, honest camaraderie in a Hoitan camp, and are most often perfectly chaste. An astounding comfort to such proximity and intimacy is readily noticed, curiously contrasting their strong taboo against the naked form. Any scout or licensed prospector, seeking to treat or trade among the Hoitan, would be advised to familiarise themselves with these customs. Be prepared to encounter them, uncomfortable though it may be, to prevent any slight offence or disturbance due to unfamiliarity from impeding their work. Egari Tsiyart, scholar attaché to the Hoitan First Depot, Tamar Company. I I like that. Shock horror. Thank you. I usually don't like your work, but this month it was good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's really cool. Uh, I, I love the sort of the comparing and contrasting both culture thing, both cultures you got going on. I think that's really awesome. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, why you wrote this, what are you thinking, etc. And then I'll pick your brains with certain certain points. Um, I can't remember the exact genesis of this idea, but it was recent-ish. Um... I think someone sent me a, a meme of uh, Lieutenant Worf from The Next Generation and the the gag of it was that he he was like he was going to be angry about something and actually he gave someone a hug or it was something like that. I, I can't remember the, the precise things, but that was roughly the shape of the joke. Um, and I thought it would be kind of interesting to create this idea that's really common in... in both in, in what we think of, of about real world cultures and in constructed cultures of these kind of proud warrior race, manly cultures. Um, and that's kind of how, how the Hoitan are seen in some respects. You know, they're, they're, the Abeski view them as coarse and wild and part of the wilderness and they hunt and they go into battle. Um, but to, to contrast that with, on the other side, them being very comfortable with affection and interested in, in, in their appearance. Um, and I thought that was a nice kind of uh, uh, twist on the normal kind of warrior race guy idea to have. Um, warrior bro. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, when, when you know, this kind of like hyper-masculine idea, um, which is pr- totally a modern construct, I would expect, for, for the most part, mm-hmm. Uh and kind of take that idea and just make it something, construct a different idea of masculinity with that. Are you... And then use the, 
use the abeski as a, another one to contrast it with, which is also um, a little different to our own. Um, are are you are you drawing on any real world cultures here? Because it, it it seems like you are. Uh, I can think of one, but uh, I want to get it from you first. Um, not specifically. I mean, I know, I know our ideas about masculinity are kind of different to a lot of real world and historical cultures. Um, like apparently the Vikings were super into into their their appearance. Um, hmm. and they they took they took great care of their hair and their beards. Um, and one of the ancient Mesopotamian cultures, the the warriors were the same. The warriors were um, uh, very they they prettified themselves before before battle. Um, I have it in my head that there was some some group that would like uh, hold hands uh, as they went into battle, and it kind of freaked out their their enemies. Um, huh, never heard that before. I'm not sure about that. I'm not 100 percent sure about that. Whether it's true or not doesn't really matter. It's it's still a, a kernel to build from. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't really matter for my purposes. Obviously, it matters for historical purposes. Um, but I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to imitate any specific thing here. No, because mm, I, I got bangs of Sparta, Sparta off this. Um, really? Yeah, because uh, apparently in Sparta Spartan culture, it was uh, according to Dan Carden. Anyways, it was customary to comb and oil uh, one's hair. Or, or oil other people's hair uh, on the eve of battle. And when you said Coleman okay. and oiling, I was like, Sparta? Is he doing a Sparta here? Um, hmm. But the, but the rest of it, in terms of like how they deal with outsiders and things like that, I have no idea whether or not Spartan culture um, uh, did similar things. It's just just literally the appearance thing uh, made me think of Sparta. Um, okay. But yeah. Um, so, uh, shall I, can I ask you some questions? Uh, if you must. If I must, I, we got we have to make up time, Bill. <laughs> People are in lockdown; they need stuff to listen to. We just got to we got to trade through this. Um, the uh, okay, right at the very very top, you mentioned the Bene uh, again. Yes. Yeah. Um. Just just a quick little thing, nothing to do with this story. Have you changed the spelling of the word Bene? Uh, you now have an apostrophe between Bin and E. Is that uh? Is that new? Um, I have never written it like that before. It is how this author writes it. How this is how Agari to see art writes it. Oh, br- man, brilliant! Right, this this reminds me of the Leia thing in Star Wars that we talked about before. How everyone pronounces Leia differently in Star Wars, and George pronounces it differently <laughs> to how it's done in Star Wars. And like, and his rationalization was like, people speak differently in different places. That is great. People romanize things differently in Ikern. Solid bit of world building there. 10 out of 10. 12 <laughs> out of 12. Um, and I do try and pronounce both ends usually when I say it. Um, so that's just a, a, a reflection of that. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, the, uh, then uh, the author goes on, Egari uh, goes on to mention that the Hoi Tan are the most curious nation of all those the Abeski deal with. Nation capitalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we getting... Indian type of vibes here? Are they a sovereign state? Do the Abeski ref, uh, recognize them as being sovereign, or what's what's the jazz there? Um, no, they don't really have the concept of, of sovereignty the way we'd think of it. Um, as in the Hoitani, no... as in the Hoitani don't, or the Abeski don't. Uh, neither. Right. Okay. Neither. Like the the there's no kind of 
analog to like Westphalian um, sovereignty or anything. Um, but that's that's more for uh, emphasis and contrasting with the the Bini, because the Bini are encountered as individuals. Like the, there's no real concept uh, among the Abeski of what Bini society is, because they're for the vast majority of of the time you meet an individual Bini. Mm. Um, so they're the most curious nation. So they're the most curious group that are dealt with as a group. So it's more of an emphatic thing than a than a, a capitalized for specific meaning thing. It's more more of a, it's less of a semantic thing. Right. Okay. Uh, just really quickly on the Bini again. Again, not, not part of the story. You you've mentioned before that they are interplanetary, correct? Yes. At some stage, dude, you gotta write something about the Bini. Um, but, but like <laughs> this, this is like. This is uh, it's it seems like such a non sequitur in this setting because everything everything that you've I, I know you're doing planetary romance I get that but uh, everything that you've written is very kind of like um, like real you know it's very very realistic and stuff and the idea that Bini yeah. are interplanetary and we don't quite know how they're in, interplanetary like that's a thing that I, I would really like you to explore or at least have someone try to investigate something about the Bini. Um, mm-hmm. That would be a fascinating thing, because so far we don't, we haven't really, there's been nothing really written about them other than the odd line in bits of your work. Do you reckon you'll ever write uh, about how they are doing interplanetary travel, or is that just going to be left up to our imaginations? I pretty much know. Um, I've I've a fairly good concept of how it's done. Um... I'm not sure how to work it in without making, but like still making them seem kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, I've got a very specific thing that I kind of want to do with the Bini and there's kind of a lot of elements to it that I'm not sure how to, how to align them all. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you know, and there is, that means that there's a non-zero chance that we get to hear about it. Uh, my bet is Stargates. Stargates. Bini Gates. That's what, that's, what, that's, what, that's what's happening. Um, anyhow, so, uh, yeah, go, moving on. Uh, the You mentioned here, uh, and they are vicious and passionate in combat as any of the beasts of their wild land. Uh, I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's derogatory. Um, as in, these people are like animals type thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think she considers it to be derogatory, but it's, yeah, I mean, it is pretty derogatory. Egari is a she- yeah, yeah, usually abeski names that end with vowels are feminine. Oh, you talked about that before. Damn it, man. I was, I was about to, my last, my very, very, very last note was going to be on the name of Gary, and I'm being like, oh, that sounds like Edgar. That's really cute. But uh, <laughs> it's a feminine version of Edgar. Um, just, I, okay, we're skipping to the very end then. Agari, the, the person's name, Agari Chi Yar. Is that her name? Uh, yeah, you, you, there's kind of like a, a slightly breathy sound after the Yar. Yar. Okay, so it's like an aspirate type thing. The T, uh, the TSI, yes, the T the in the middle, um, is that? C, yeah, is that? Um, what is that? Because usually we have tar, don't we? Yar te. We usually have te there in the middle, um, but now we have TSI. There's there's different different articles and things that can um, appear in in names in Abeski. I'm not sure exactly what all of them mean yet. 
um, would would this be analogous to like the Irish, like O'Reilly and McDonough, McDonough, and they kind of both mean kind of son of? Yeah, it'll be something like that. It designates that it's a family name, but I'm not sure what the specific designation is. Exactly. Yeah. Um. But but confirm or deny whether it's daughter of. Um. I'm not sure. Probably not. Not sure. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, so what else have I got? Uh, I, I underlined, uh, for all this, they are curiously unmanly, which I thought was hilarious because, like, mm. obviously you elaborate on it more, but just kind of like, what, what is the concept of manliness? Like, that's, it's not this one defined thing and therefore you can't be, like, unmanly. So that made me giggle a little bit um, and made me think of this, um, the writer being a little bit not, not very traveled uh shall we say <laughs> like just having this like singular notion of masculinity um yeah the, after that i had the the hair combing and oiling and i wanted to bring up sparta but we already did um can you talk to me a little bit about the line welcomed outsiders are uh, are included also and given lavish attention to ensure they appear the equal as any native hoitani that seems like an interesting cultural note there do you want to talk about that um, well, like, like like was mentioned above, they're they're very welcoming to outsiders, but just to a certain extent, and beyond that extent, they're very very closed off. Um, but one of the things that they they want outsiders to to be welcome, um, and to take part in things. So when they when you know someone attends a, a feast or a celebration or something, uh, it is made sure that they are presented in a in a in a flattering way. Why are they welcoming though? Because if you think of this from like a survival point of view, would it not be a good thing to have a certain degree of xenophobia and be all like, we don't let the outsiders in for fear of like outsideriness? It does not seem a bit strange to be all like, no, you all can come in as much as you want, just, you know, within limits. But like, yeah, beyond that, just anyone's welcome. That seems a bit too open. But people, people aren't like that. People, people are, people are a social animal. Um, And they, they do have, uh, other safety mechanisms like their their actual homes are are, are secretive. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I I take your point that people are social animals, but like social animals within the tribe, you know, um, like we just like humans display this behavior um for worse mostly uh of of xenophobia. It's like people who you don't know or don't look like you, etc. Uh, people. A lot of people tend to be very suspicious of those groups, you know. Um, I don't know. It just it just seems really strange that they're all like, "Come on in," um, uh, not to my house, but beyond that, uh, all bets are off. That seems I don't know. It just seems no, it's, 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 it's seems not all bets are off. It's it's not a case of all bets are off. It's just that they they have they have certain um, customs around hospitality, and one of them is that you look after guests and you are you are open to guests mm, and you are okay. generous unless you have a reason not to be that's fair actually now that you frame it i thought that makes sense because yeah laws of hospitality yeah no that that sorry that that does make sense now that you, th- now that you say it uh so moving on to the next point uh i have underlined here that they hunt urzelk uh what mm-hmm. are urzelk are we is this an animal uh it is an animal um I think the name is a very, very strong clue. Um, I mean, uh, an, so, oh, 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 can I guess? Can I guess? I want to guess. I want to guess. Uh, 
I was going yeah okay I was going to tell you off air and then let let people let listeners guess if they wanted but go go ahead we can we can edit around this if you like Oh no I want to keep my guess in Jesus uh, I think if it if it's a really strong uh I okay I don't know uh, elk it has the word elk in it I'm thinking yeah. some form of deer uh or is uh, a prefix that is that it happens a lot of music and we get like or text and ors okay. and things like that where it's like the original um so or elk could be like uh, a sort of like original deer like a like almost like a dire wolf type thing like an og wolf uh, bigger better badder stronger than wolves we have nowadays so this ors or elk is a bigger better badder version of some sort of deer like animal no <laughs> <laughs> am okay, I way, but, am I way, 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 way off. No, you, you've identified some of the right elements there. Um, the the don't look at ur, look at urs, u or s. Urs. That's not doing anything for me, man. Bear. Yeah. Ursa minor. Urs. Bear. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a bear. Sort of. Sort of. It's a bear with elk's horns. <laughs> Yes. But antlers. Wait, no, I, genuinely it is? More, like, not maybe quite as literally as that, but it would it would certainly seem to be kind of like that. Oh, man, you're pulling an avatar here. Hybrid animals, I like it. <laughs> it's a beer, a bear deer. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bear, it's kind of like a bear with antlers, yeah. That's class. That is class. Do you know what? <laughs> From listening to the, I, I'm sure they they hunt um, these animals for their antlers and for their meat. Um, but just just a little, little just a little thing that pops into my head. Uh, apparently, bear meat is meant to be horrific. Um, it's because they apparently bears they they eat a lot of um, rotten stuff, um, and they're oh. able to cross it fine. But it leaves a really weird taste uh, in their meat and apparently uh, fish is a big part of the diet or at least for the bears in North America um, uh, and so you get this weird rotten fish type taste off bear meat apparently this is according to Joe Rogan so I don't know how true that is but um, hmm. that seems really strange uh, it seems really strange that a a mammal would would taste like rotten fish that's really bizarre um, yeah it's not appealing not appealing, no. Uh, I wouldn't like to that, eat a bear anyway. I mean, They're I cute, wouldn't. Like. Uh, they are cute. <laughs> I, I wouldn't because vegetarianism. Uh, but outside of that, if I weren't a vegetarian, I wouldn't be opposed to eating most things as long as I know they've been um, killed for like ethical reasons. Like if there was a... Uh, the, the bear population was out of control and they needed to cull whatever. I'd, I'd rather... Yeah, I'd rather it be used um, yeah. than just sure, discarded sure, sure. or burnt, you know? Um, I would agree with that. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be okay with just going into the woods and hunting me a bear for shits and giggles and eating it because of that. Like, that seems that seems wrong to me. Um, um, but but um, I, think, I think in general, carnivores are meant to not taste great. Really? Oh, I never heard that before. I think so, yeah. And why, why would carnivores not taste great? Um, I think it's just kind of like that 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 their the their diet is already meat, so it creates a kind of an un, a strong and pleasant flavor. Like like a cat is meant to be horrible because they're carnivores. 
Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting. So, I mean, yeah. so that's that, would that mean... Well, what are dogs? Dogs are omnivores, correct? Uh, they're fairly carnivorous. Like, they mm. will eat other stuff, but they're, they're mainly into meat. So, do you think uh, in all the countries that eat dog, do you think dog tastes, like, tastes terrible, then? Um, I mean, yeah, I would have thought so. I would have thought or, so. Or, geez, this is this is a bit dark. Maybe um, in in breeding dogs for for food production, you lean heavily on the omnivorous side of their diet and just make them uh, uh, omnivores, ba- or like pla- uh, like um, herbivores, basically, to make the meat taste nice. That seems, geez, that seems dark. Potentially eating meat, man. Eating meat. It's it's a dark place. Um, it's th- it's it is dark. I, I'm not I'm not even a vegetarian, like, but it is it is weird <laughs> and, and it, it's i sorry we're getting off track here so i'm really sorry but it's uh it's it's I, I think the weird thing is the industrial nature of it like i, I again i don't think there's anything strange yeah. with like um if you went out and you know uh butchered your own chicken and lived off your your chickens like i think that's mm-hmm. o- okay in the grand scheme of things um but like the idea of like a, a million chickens are crammed into a space of a football pitch and lead horrible lives like that's that's dark i think um yeah personal carnivorous behavior i think is fine uh, mass carnivorous behavior can can lead to problems um if taken yeah. to if taken to an extreme but anyway anyway this is this is quickly getting in on uh, into uh vegetarian bashes meat eater territory which i'm not a fan of doing anyway so uh, let's move on from here the next line <laughs> i have underlined here is um uh just a little props i really enjoy this an astounding comfort to such proximity and intimacy is readily noticed curiously contrasting their strong taboo against a naked form i think that's really cool uh again not uh, painting a very complex um image of this culture and contrasting it with a complex image of a culture who if i recall don't have uh they don't have such a strong taboo uh with the naked form correct yeah I, th- yeah. I think that was something that came up in the in the last one about yeah. them that the the Abeski scout he he kind of debased himself by being naked in front of his hosts, um, mm. and like it's not a big deal for for their culture, but it is in the Hoytan. It's it's there's a stronger taboo against it. Um, and I think that's really cool, and it subverts some of the um, the notions that we might our uninformed notions that we might have. Like I think. Uh, our monkey brains like to think that, you know, quote, civilized people wrap up and quote, uncivilized people are out there frolicking around the woods naked or whatever. It's kind of cool that you've yeah. taken that sort of um, unfounded notion and, and flipped it. Uh, and that, that's a mm-hmm. fun little thing you've done there. Thank you. Then I have uh, the final line of your text is, I think this is harkens back to uh, the days uh, long, long ago, where you used to finish your bits of prose with like a really dark uh, note, and uh, <laughs> th- this is a similar thing. Be prepared to encounter them, uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable as it may be, to prevent any slight offence or disturbance due to unfamiliarity from impeding their work. The idea of like suck up to them because we have business amongst them, and business probably means some horrible colonial stuff. Um, I think exactly. that's. I think that is really, it's really fun and just a little bit dark, which I which I appreciate. 
Yeah, I, I kind of felt when I was writing this, it's like, actually, that is kind of an element of my style, isn't it? That I I, I put a, a final paragraph that gives you a different and darker perspective on the rest of it. And, and, it, and it's subtly dark as well. Like, you kind of have to, mm-hmm. you have to think about it for a second and go like, oh, that's, oh, that's not nice at all. You know, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't mm-hmm. hit you over the head with like gore or darkness or anything. Um, it's subtle, which makes it really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, final, final, final point. Uh, tell me what a scholar attaché is. Um, so they, they're academics, I guess, um, and employed, sort of like anthropologists in in this case, um, uh, attached to the the Tamar Company's various expeditions in Hoitan to get a better insight of their culture, um, to learn how to deal with them do the do the tamar company send out attaches to other cultures um yeah not, they're not like sent to the cultures as such but yes they're okay. they're they're attached to the to the local uh, the local depot in this case or to you know there might be aboard a, a vessel or whatever and their job is to make reports and you know, make an effort to understand why the how the culture works and how to deal with them to the the best uh, ability, deal to the best them. benefit. Love it. Yeah, engage with them, you know, for maximum profit. So the guy from the previous writing, Levente Alfren, um, <clears throat> she would be writing. She would be writing this based on reports from people like him, from the scouts like him, who would say this is what what the Hoytan are like. And she would take that that information and write it down, and hmm. and you know put it all together. But would probably go on expeditions herself as well with scouts. Sorry, non sequitur. Just something popped into my head here. Um, how mm-hmm. do, how is information communicated in Ecairn? Like, is this a, like a letter letter, as in you know put it in the post office? Uh, is there a post office? Uh, how does that? Th- this one, this one today. Uh, yes. But also in general? Uh, well, this would be like, um, maybe more like, like a, a pamphlet or an article in, in, a, in a book, uh, an instruction manual yeah. to to the Tamari officers and scouts who have to, who have to work here. Okay, but and in, so in terms of the ones that are like ostensibly letters that you've written, how do they get moved around Ikaren? Um, well, Ikaren has, uh, particularly the Abeski, they have like a, a fairly solid um, infrastructure for, for commerce and communication because they have airships. Um, so, so there it, isn't like a, a formal thing of, I go to the post office and I put a stamp on it. But, you know, you you would, there would be like slightly less formal ways of doing it. Like you, there would be messengers who, who you could say, you know, take this to... Um, to Mearsphere and pass it on to another messenger who will deliver it to the correct address. And predominantly done via airstrip, uh, via airship, like you said, yeah? Yes, because because the Abeski, they, they don't really travel long distances by ground. Um, oh, they, so the Abeski... They, they don't the build roads to do that kind of thing. And so the, and they don't, like, horses? Horses aren't really a thing for the meter? Not really, no. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Uh, there's another yeah. interesting thing as well, like to, to maybe to write about in the future, um, how information is carried. 
Um, that that would be really mm-hmm. fun. Anyway, so those are my points on uh, your piece about the Hoitani. Uh, greatly enjoyed. Is there any uh, closing points uh, you would like to make? I don't think so. I think we 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 covered pretty much everything. Green room time again. Uh, we are going to have an Artifexian book club corner. And in fact, we should just call this Artifexian book corner because then the initials are ABC and that just appeals to me. Um, so that's the thing that I think we should do. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, the short story, uh, Story of Your Life, by an author whose name I've forgotten. <laughs> Quick, Ted Google. Chang. <laughs> Say again? Ted Chang. There you go. Um, the links in the show notes, if you haven't already read it, spoilers will be occurring. Um, so go read it if you haven't and, and come back and finish out this episode. Beyond this, we're not going to talk about anything else. This is the final bit of this uh, episode. So you don't need to worry about missing stuff afterwards if you haven't read the book. Um, so Bill, you've read the book, correct? Or you've read the story? Yep, I have. Um, do you want to give a uh, summary uh, of it? Like a plot summary, um, Bill. Uh, now, this is an interesting one to give, because will I give uh-huh. the summary as it occurs in the book, or will I give a chronological summary? Um, so, this is the story of um, a linguist who is employed uh, to communicate with an alien species after first contact on Earth. Um, mm. So, it's, it's a fairly, like our normal real world setting um, and then an alien contact happens and this linguist is is tasked with communicating with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a story of her learning their language and what happens to her as she begins to understand their language um, and then interspersed with vignettes from other parts of her life uh, largely to do with her relationship with her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, uh, the impression I got was not necessarily other parts of her life, but her future. Okay, so, <laughs> you you are correct. You are correct, right? Um, All right. Maybe it was, I was just tired when I read this. Um, the, the, the story, like, her daughter is born, is conceived and born after the, the main events of the, of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I somehow misunderstood that <laughs> and thought her daughter was alive at the time of the events um and yeah i i just misplaced the, the the main chunk of the story in the overall chronology somehow um, I, I think that's on me as a reader <laughs> i don't i don't think that's the author's problem i think i just messed that one up i i think well i think it kind of is the author's problem but there's no way of getting around it in that uh, so again, just for everyone, main story is the alien sort of story, and the other the the it's interspersed with vignettes of of uh, the linguist's life. Those vignettes are written in this like weird mismatch of tenses, um, mm-hmm. um, and so when I was reading it, I was kind of like uh, the whole time I was like, what, what, where is this happening? How is this happening? When is this happening? And it's just we're not used to reading English like that, you know? Um, yeah. And at times it feels like it's uh, the, the, those vignettes are written written like in in a present tense, but like in the past. In the same way, you might say like um, I was in the pub. Uh, 
two weeks ago, I'm sitting at the table, I'm listening to a thing. You know, you use the present tense, but in a past yeah. context. So there's a whole load of tense stuff going on that can confuse you. And it confused me too. I had to read the story twice to really figure out mm. what the, what's going on. Um, so, See, I, I, I got quite comfortable with that and I just kind of went with the flow. Um, and then I think because I was comfortable and I went with the flow, I didn't put the effort in to make things fit together properly. So. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, just real quick before we get into a breakdown of it did you like the story yay or nay on the story uh, yeah overall yeah yeah I, I same um, compared to uh, the China Mieva book it's certainly the prose are not as ornate um, or well produced I would say this is a lot more workman like um, it's a lot easier to digest than the China Mieva's work um, but it's Good. I think it's one of the better stories in this collection of short stories that... Uh, what's the guy's name again? Ted Chiang. Ted. Uh, Ted has uh, has written. Um, so yeah, I'm in favour of it overall. Um, the, uh, show, shall we start into some points here? I've taken notes. I have a Kindle app open in front of me here and I have a heap of notes. Shall we talk through them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this contrasts really nicely. Uh, this encounter with aliens, rather, contrasts really nicely with China's Mievel's work in the previous uh, podcast uh, because we talked during that about how it's weird that China sets up this alien species but like whose language is understandable to an extent by humans, which, if you think yeah. about it, probably wouldn't happen. And what, what Ted yeah. does in this book, which is great, is that he presents, I think, a truly alien species um, where the the humans in this story cannot understand, uh, nor can they reproduce uh, the sounds that the aliens are making. And the quote here is like, the recorded sound, the recording sounded vaguely like that of a wet dog shaking the water off its fur. So... There was no kind of like, oh, the recording sounded like Gizarmigook. You know, it's... <laughs> there's, there's literally no way of, of, of producing it. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and they go on to say that, like, um, you know, the, the sounds cannot be produced by the human vocal tract. Uh, there may even be sounds in there that the human ear cannot distinguish. So they, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the entirety of the alien part of the story, the linguist talks to the aliens via computers. And I, and yeah. I thought that was really cool. And I thought that would be a problem because you, we constantly have to be reminded of the fact there's a computer in the way. But like, it's really nicely mentioned once at the start. And then you forget about it and your brain just assumes they're talking normally. Uh, but every so often you re- remember, oh no, they're not. They're talking via computers. It doesn't get in the way of the story, which I think was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what? let me see, what else have I got here? Um, oh yeah, they uh, the aliens come to Earth and they place these things called looking glasses uh, on Earth. Um, there was nine of them in the United States and 112 around the world. Just bring that up as a sort of like a little world building sort of thing. And these, I get the impression that these are kind of like almost like standing mirrors <clears throat> that are like TV sets um, that the linguist talks to the aliens through these TV sets. So the mm-hmm. aliens never set foot on Earth. They're up in orbit or something and they communicate yeah. at a distance. Um, which again, which again, I think I, I really liked. I think it was really cool. Um, look, you look into it and you you see like in 3D within the within the structure that, that they call the looking glass. 
Um, yeah. It's like you're looking through a window, but it's it's a projection from somewhere else, or it's a broadcast from somewhere else. And and it, and what's really fun later on, they they make a point of saying that this technology is not like human technology, and that there's no scan lines uh, the way a TV set on Earth would work, and there's no pixels, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was just like it didn't do anything for a plot or anything. I just think it was a really nice detail, and made me think like, oh, what is what is this thing? And it's just it was it was cool. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, oh, there's a line I underlined here. No one knew why the aliens wouldn't talk to us in person. Fear of cooties, maybe. And my note was, <laughs> I'm with the aliens. Because we brought up in the past about how I think if aliens come here, uh, there is a non-zero chance that whatever diseases they have may make the leap to us. And that represents a more of an existential threat than the aliens coming and bombing us. Um, so I was like, yes, aliens, I'm with you. Fear of cooties. Stay well away. <laughs> Vindication. Another note I have here is the linguist is enlisted by the military to talk to these aliens. Um, the military want to find out what they're doing here, uh, what their intentions are, etc. And one thing that the military is really big on is that they do not want the aliens to learn English. Like they're really like, don't let them learn about us at all. We want to learn about them. We don't learn about us. Mm-hmm. And they keep bringing it up. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, it's like, well, if you don't want them to learn bloody English, why would you bring an English-speaking linguist into the mix? Get a Spanish-speaking linguist. Like, the, the entire crew is English speakers. Like, why are you doing that? Like, get Or get scientists that speak um, Fula or, or some language that is not English. It just seemed like a really weird non-secretary. Like, don't, you know, know English, folks. It's like, yeah, just, just don't get someone who doesn't speak English. Like, it was, it was strange. Um, well, I, th- I think, I think like, it's only coincidentally English. It's just like that happens to be the majority language of, of the United States. Um, I think the point, the overall point is don't let them learn sure, too yeah, much yeah. about humanity. Sure, I take that. But it, just, it was just, I don't know, every time you said that, it, just, it stuck out to me. Uh, but I, I do take your point. Um, oh, this is a fun little part. So the this is how the aliens are described. They're described as being, uh, looking like a suspended barrel at the intersection of seven limbs, um, radi- radially symmetric, uh, with any of its limbs serving as an arm or leg. And, uh, and they came to call these uh, aliens heptopods. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's really cool, and it's mentioned later on in the story as well that the morphology of the aliens is is a metaphor for the language they speak. Because as we learn later on, uh, with the writing system, they don't think linearly, um, and so the shape of the aliens is kind of non. It's 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 um, how would you describe it? It's uh, like radially symmetric. Um, there's no front end or back end. There's just like. It's this non-linear structure. Uh, so I, mm-hmm. I really like the way Ted has taken the idea of what he's going to play with with language and molded the aliens to be symbolic of that. I think that's really fun. Yeah. Um, the, the main meat of this story for me is that uh, the linguist uh, uncovers two languages from the aliens and they became to be known as Heptopod A and Heptopod B. Heptopod yeah. A was the speech of the aliens, like what what they say. Heptopod B ostensibly is the written form of that speech, but the more that the linguist 
discovers about it, the more uh, she begins to realize that it's not uh, a cipher for the, the verbal form. It's a new language altogether. Um, so it presents this kind of cool scenario whereby one culture has two languages, one in verbal form and one in written form. Um, and the idea of being like, and it, 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 Ted poses this in the book, he's kind of like, why would you just have a, uh, a copy of what you say? Why not use this medium of writing to convey an entirely different thing? And that's an interesting thing I hadn't talk about, thought about at all. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Agree with this sort of, do you think this is a natural thing that could happen? Um, different languages based on medium in the one culture? Um, it certainly makes sense according to the way that the heptapods are presented. And yeah, I guess, I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, I know it's not exactly the case in, in the, the various languages of China because they, they do, the scripts do convey a, a degree of, um, or a, a varying amounts of sonic information, but uh, the, the idea that a lot of people have is that they don't and that the, the scripts are uniform across the different languages of China, that they use the same script and it'll be spoken differently because they're different mm. languages in, in different regions. Um, so I guess that's kind of, it leans a bit towards that, but it isn't It isn't as as um, quite as clearly defined as the example in, in um, This Is Your Life. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 it kind of makes sense. The- um the this, the the uh, metaphor that they bring up in the book, which I thought was pretty cool, was that of a uh, like a stop sign, uh, as in like the red circle with a line through it. Like that yeah. doesn't depict stop per se. It doesn't it, uh, depict a a singular word. Um, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't represent the the sonic event of the word stop. Exactly. It has the same meaning, but it's not. It's it doesn't represent that sound. And so the linguist basically says that this heptapod B, this written language, is much more akin to, to that sort of thing than it is to, like, an yeah. alphabet or whatever. Um, yeah. Which I, I, mean, which I think is really cool. Uh, and then she, go, she goes on to find out that this, um, this, this writing system or this language is, is it's not strictly, like, logographic. The word I think they came up with was sem, semasiographic. Semographic. Yeah. Um, and if I if I recall correctly, it's basically that in order to write this language, you need to know exactly how you need to know exactly what it is you're going to say before you start writing, because the whole system is d- d- like an intricate, complex graphic graphical representation akin to like a mandala type thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's no kind of like you write the word I and then you have a think about it and then you go was and then you have a think about it, and then the next word. It's like it's it's all interlaced. And this plays in the idea that these aliens are they don't perceive time linearly. They perceive time um, instantaneously in a way like they see the past, present and future all at once. So it's they a gestalt. Yeah, exactly. So they know what they're going to say exactly before they're going to say it, so they can just produce this like complex mandala type thing in a totally non-linear mm. way. Uh, and then the cool thing in the story is that the the linguist, as she studies this, begins to uh, develop 
uh, temporal abilities like these aliens. She begins to be able to see past, present, and future instantaneously spread out amongst her non-linearly um, in a extreme application of the Sapphire Wharf hypothesis, which I think was really fun. What do, what do you think about that, Bill? Um, it is, I thought it was a little silly. Um, <laughs> it, it does make for a good story. Um, and I, I knew roughly that that's what the story was. Um, I knew that the, you know, the, the Sapphire Wharf hypothesis and the seeing, perceiving time differently was an element of the story just from hearing other people talk about it. Um, but I thought it was that the real, the, the kind of the crux of, of the story was the realization that the aliens can do that because of their language. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, fair enough. That kind of makes sense, you know, for, for an alien. Um, and then when it turned out that it was that the people can do it, if you learn the language, I thought that was a little bit sillier. Um, it's, yeah, but I mean, it's, 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 that's just a small thing. Like, I think it, it, it makes sense, um, as a reveal. It, it does kind of make me not really understand some of the, the behavior in, in the, in the story though. Like, hmm. cause it seemed, it seems like towards the end, um, she says something to the aliens uh, and it's it's not explained in plain English. Like it's kind of given as a gloss and I didn't, I haven't taken the time to like figure out what, what the meaning behind what she says is. Um, and then the aliens leave. And I kind of read that as like, she says something to them to make them leave. Like there's some kind of revelation in what she says. Uh, but like, why would they do that if they could see through time? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, time travel, like, in a sense, this is a form of time travel. It always is problematic in terms of repercussions. Yeah. Like, it's always, always problematic. Um, but I then, told- then again, I I misunderstood the, the whole chronology of the thing. <laughs> so maybe maybe I shouldn't be the one to, to be criticizing it. <laughs> and, and so this is this is where this revelation that the, the linguist begins to perceive time uh, as one thing a non, in a non-linear sense. Uh, this is this then begins to make sense of the way that the story is written in terms of having the main story interspersed with these vignettes yeah. written in strange tenses. Um, you begin to realize that she's experienced all of these things at once in a way, um, which is, that's I think that's a cool reveal. Problems aside, like yeah. plot problems aside, I think it's a cool reveal. And yeah. you suddenly begin to realize like, oh, this is what uh, the author's doing. That's, that's, that's really nice. Um, yeah. And like very specifically, one of the things she describes is watching the heptapods write a sentence and and like breaking it down breaking down the video and seeing what elements of the strokes become certain words and there is no clear thing to it like you you'll have a stroke that rep- that's the beginning of representing the verb and then as it goes around it'll become like one element of a pronoun and then will be become one element of an adjective or whatever according to no particular pattern um, and the way that's laid into, I, I, I guess I'm just re- restating what you're saying here. Um, no, no, but just no. like that very specific thing about how they write, about her, her learning how they write is the really clearest, um, uh, version of that in, in the story, I think. Mm-hmm. The, the, the strokes don't, don't follow a, a particular kind of linear pattern. Um, and the way the story is constructed, like one bit is about, her daughter one bit is about the aliens the next bit is about a different thing to do with the aliens back to her daughter 
um, because of the unlinearity of how they write it and the unlinearity of how they perceive it. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think, I didn't clock that. So the the story is written kind of like how one of those mandala type structures are written. That's cool. Yeah, that, that's that's only just occurred to me kind of while I started explaining it. But yeah, I think so. That's brilliant. That's really cool. Um, the way I, I thought of it in my head was uh, because they they know exactly what they're going to write before they write it. I thought of it almost to try and make sense of it. I was thinking of like they look at a page or whatever it is they write in and they're able to see almost like trace lines everywhere. And they just like randomly follow the path along the trace lines without needing to worry about like structure the way that we do. Like we can't, you know, we have to write I before we write the word was, you know, there's an order of operations, but because they can see everything all at once, they can just like trace over this imagined pattern in their head completely haphazardly and at the end it all clicks into place and you have your written heptapod b type thing that's how i was kind of making sense of it in my head um Mm -hmm. which i which i think is really cool um there was a discussion about free will in the middle there now this whole free will versus determinism is a bit of a you know um a a hack conversation at this stage everyone seems to have it uh but it came up so let's talk about it um what did you think about the whole book of ages analogy in there? Like the idea that, you know, if you were to see, uh, read a book that contains uh, the past, present and future all written as is, um, does that render it uh, paradoxical? Because you could simply just read what you're going to do and then not do it. Um, and then this is placed into the idea of determinism free will. What did you think of that section? Um it didn't make a huge impact on me. Um, okay. I mean, it's a it's a concept I'm I'm sort of fairly familiar with and have thought about. Um, so it, it didn't. I, I just kind of write, oh yeah, th- this is that thing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't really rem- remember it super clearly. Are you a free will or are you a determinism type dude? Um, or do you care? <laughs> I I think for practical for practical purposes, assume free will. Um, because I don't think we can get anywhere otherwise. I mean, assuming assuming total determinism is kind of like c- cutting off the question before it's finished. It's like, it's the end of the conversation. Um, mm. To my mind. Uh, and it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, and if we're wrong about it, well, we were, we were going to be wrong about it anyway because we were determined to be wrong about it, so it doesn't matter. I think about it similarly. I think about, like, base reality as being deterministic. Um, like, yeah. we should be able to determine... Perci- if, if we have a powerful enough measuring system, we should be able to measure exactly what all neurons can and will do at any point, and therefore we can determine a set of outcomes... Uh, and if everything is mm-hmm. measurable, ergo, it is determinable. determinable. Um, but yeah. that's like a micro level thing. And on the macro level, it doesn't really play into it. And there's still free will, you know, it's like free will on top of a bed of determinism. Uh, yeah. this, det- this determinism manifests itself in the macro world as free will. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would kind of say that that's that's roughly what I'd feel, but I mean, 
the, the, the act of observation and the act of taking measurements is an active thing. Like you can't passively observe a system. Um, so for that reason, if you were to try do that, you would get a different outcome than if you didn't try to do it. Oh, you're invoking the uncertainty principle here. Um, is it? Is it? Yeah, yeah. It's it is uncertainty. Yeah, Heisenberg. Um, and like that. That's not just. I, I guess that's not just like some kind of woo idea that oh, if you watch it, it'll be different. But like literally, to measure something, mm-hmm. you have to engage with it somehow. Mm-hmm. So like to if you take take something's temperature, you are removing heat from the system, um, oh, and so no. on. To make a measurement, you have to remove energy to for whatever is being measured. So, so do you, so do you think that it may be fundamentally unknowable as to whether or not reality at a basic level is deterministic? Because it you can never inquire because you would always necessarily upset the uh, structure or whatever. I I would say that doesn't make it unknowable. I would say that that is how we know that it is that it is not the case. Right. Okay. Because That's it, interesting. It, it it cannot be determined because the act of making that determination would is an active influence. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, that's, There's also uh, the concept of Laplace's demon, which I used to understand a lot better, and now I realise that I, I forgot how it works, but it's it's a sort of related thing to look up. Oh, I'll put it in the show notes. I've never heard that before. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, on, the, on the Book of Age thing, um, uh, in, in, again, in this story, um, the story, it's brought up that if you yeah. know the future, like, why would you bother, you know, why would you bother sticking to the path that you know is going to happen? Like, why don't you subvert that mm. and things? And what I think was kind of fun was that the the sort of answer to this was that you, that both the heptopods and our linguist kind of get a sense of joy or fulfillment or comfort or something from acting out uh, the path they know they're going to take. Like reality mm-hmm. is performative for them. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought that was really fun. And I, it got me thinking, it got me kind of thinking of like, and it's analogous to like almost being a vegetarian. Like if you go to a buffet, right. And laid out in front of you is a ton of dishes, uh, like 10 dishes. Nine of them are meat based. One is vegetable based. You as a vegetarian are, you know, you're going to choose that vegetable based dish because it's going to make you happy uh, for like, you know, ethical reasons and things like that. You have the option of breaking that and doing, going with the meat dish, but you're never actually going to do it. It's not really an option. Um, And so that's, I kind of think about the way that's kind of how determinism is dealt with in this story. It's like, she, the, the linguist knows that she can break it, but she's not going to. Like, there's no question that she would ever do it. Uh, analogous yeah. to the vegetarian scenario, which I thought was really fun. And it's not a take that I've heard all that often. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. And that, I guess that answers my, uh, or goes some of the way to answering my gripe about how she could tell them something to make them leave. Um, yeah, she and them knew that they were going to leave. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose they knew they were going to leave when she found out how to see the future and once she found out how to see the future she was in on the plan basically and then they just acted out the plan mm. um, yeah 
which I think that was uh, that was that was cool. Uh, what else have I got here? I don't really have much. I don't really have much more. Um, do you have anything else to add on the book? Um, I don't think so. I think we've we've covered covered the guts of it. Yeah. So. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed this book. I think it it's written in a real quirky way. Uh, it deals with fun perennial topics like free will and determinism, and it's also really fun to read a book or to read a story that has not only conlang as its main sort of thing uh, or language as its main thing, but specifically written language. Like the whole story is about written language, and that yeah. as a conlanging nerd deeply appeals to me so if you like Artifexian you're gonna like this book and you should definitely go check it out I'll leave links in the show notes yeah I endorse um cool so uh shall we set some reading for uh not next month probably the month after um don't do that sure I was I was thinking based on conversations we had ages ago Bill um about reading Plato's Republic and reviewing it on air what do you think about that oh we did discuss that ages ago, didn't we? We d- yes. Yeah, see, you brought it up, and you were like, he, Plato does like legit world building in it when thinking about how uh, society should form. So I was like, well, look, that looks yeah. on topic. Uh, let's 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 read some Plato's Republic. <laughs> yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, also, what I what I might do. Uh, do I want to say this on air? Yeah. Uh, what I might do is I might leave a form in the show notes, and if you have any books um or movies actually any media of any sort that is specifically deals with good uh or specifically has world building and conlang as its central sort of thing as per china medieval and uh the story of your life um and you'd like us to review it leave it leave your suggestion in in the form um just one thing I will ask: don't don't leave like your favorite work, because uh, I think sometimes when people uh, solicit um, suggestions, people are inclined to go like, "Oh, I really like this thing." Ergo, they'll really like this thing. Listen really carefully to the parameters of the thing. It, uh, it has to have world building calling as its central central focus, right? So, can you come up with a suggestion that is uh, that suits that brief? Uh, well, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So I'll leave that form in the show notes. So uh, not not just like a a book that has a fictional world in it, but you know where world building is kind of a bit more thought out or is a, a central metaphor or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, like I like I mean, Lord of the Rings wouldn't really count. Um, yeah. For this, um, so I'll leave that leave that form, and uh, if you have any suggestions at all, uh, leave leave them in the form. Um. But as of that, uh, aside from that, Plato's Republic, probably in two months' time. Uh, Bill, shall we wrap it up there? Let's leave it at that. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening, uh, Internet. Thanks for supporting the show, just via listening, also via Patreon and via the merch. It's much, much, much appreciated. Yeah, enjoy or enjoy lockdown. Stay safe, stay healthy. Look after yourselves. Hope- Look after exactly. your communities. Sing songs, wash hands, don't sneeze on people. It's 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 it's, it's basic, but we can all do it if we all get together. Um, the yeah, I was. I hope to see you all next month, uh, Bill. Until next time, Edgar out. Edgar out. <laughs>